1: Hello, and welcome back to another episode of New Books on Japanese Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I am your host today, Jingyi Li, from the University of Arizona. In today's episode, we have Professor Christopher Joby with us to talk about his new book, The Dutch Language in Japan, a cultural and sociolinguistic study of Dutch as a contact language in Tokugawa and Meiji, Japan. Dr. Jovi is a historian of language currently uh, at Academia Sinica. This book is a systematic analysis of the ways that the Dutch language circulated, influenced, and was influenced by the Japanese language, as well as other languages that were used in Tokugawa, Japan. The Netherlands was one of the few places that maintained trading relationships with early modern Japan and the Dutch language has played a very important role in the circulation of information. So welcome to new books on Japanese studies, Professor Joby.
0: Thank you very much, thanks for having me.
1: Thank you. Um, From this book, I get the impression that your expertise is also in European languages. And um, I I, I know that you speak or you use many different kinds of languages. So what's your background like and how did you become interested in the history of the Dutch language in Japan?
0: Good, good questions. Um, Yeah, I I love languages. Uh, I've studied quite a few languages over my um, career. Uh, my first uh, degree was actually in Arabic and Turkish, uh, would you believe, so uh, a little different from this. But um, I come from East England uh, and that historically has got a lot of contact with uh, the low countries and we used to go on holiday to to Belgium, uh, to Brugge, when I was young. Um, and. Uh, the, the Belgians, uh, as the Dutch, could speak English well. So I thought, oh, why don't I learn their language? Uh, so I, I bought a book, Teach Yourself Dutch, and started learning the Dutch language. Uh, at school, I studied German, which um, is, is closely related to Dutch. Uh, so that helped my Dutch. So I've always had this passion uh, for Dutch. Um, and when I was doing my uh, PhD um I was actually studying theology, would you believe? How do we get from theology to Dutch in Japan? Let me try and tell you. Um, so I was doing my PhD and uh, had an Erasmus exchange in uh, Amsterdam uh, where I was able to study the work of uh, Rembrandt and other Dutch artists and that really fired up my my lifelong interest in, in Dutch gain um, and uh, I completed my PhD in theology, but at a certain point, decided I actually wanted to follow the Dutch language and teach the Dutch language. Um, so that kind of got me into, um, yeah, teaching Dutch and 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 being involved in that. And your second question, I think, was about how I got into Dutch in Japan. Yes. Yeah. Um, Well, that's uh, another interesting part of the story. Um, I was teaching Dutch. uh, I had some part-time jobs in the UK. But in 2013, I got a job teaching Dutch in South Korea. Um, And uh, I I, I took that. Uh, I'd never been to South Korea, but I thought that was interesting. Uh, And while I was there, uh, I had to teach on um, the history of the Dutch in East Asia. Uh, And that necessarily brought me into contact with the VOC, the Dutch East India Company. Uh, And I, I, you know, got to know that uh, the Dutch had had quite a lot of trading activity in Japan. Um, And one thing led to another. And I I found an interesting website on the uh, National Diet Library uh, site uh, about Rangaku, um, you know, the, the study of Dutch in Japan. Uh, And I was absolutely fascinated by that, what happens when one language meets another, when one culture meets another. I think that's at the core of a lot of the work that I do. Uh, And I, you know, found out that no one had really written a book uh, about the Dutch language in Japan. I thought, okay, let's do it. Um, If I'd realised what an immense task it was then, I might have decided uh, my time was better spent elsewhere. But I'm very glad uh, I did, um, and seven years later, I, I produced this book.
1: That's amazing. Um, everyone who, who who who'd read this book, I think they will all be grateful for your years spent on the Dutch language in Japan. Um, so, of all these languages that you can speak or use, mm. do you have a favorite one?
0: Well. It is Dutch, uh, funnily enough. I say, I say funnily enough because certainly in the English-speaking world, um, you know, not not many people learn Dutch. In part because uh, the Dutch and the Flemish typically speak very good um, English. But I've just always had this love for Dutch. Um, trying to analyse why that is um, is is not easy. I think it's in part because it it's kind of like English, but it's kind of not like English, um, if if you like, so it's like a uh, a close cousin, you you know, um, who you get on with rather than a distant relative, if you like, um, and uh, yeah, so so I love Dutch, but I I, I love all languages. I, I love Italian, um, uh, I love Spanish, Portuguese, um, Slavic languages, but. You have to focus on on one area, one language, I think, to really make progress in your academic career. So at a certain point, I decided I had to give up some of those languages, if you like, particularly Italian, um, in order to focus on Dutch. But I guess this book has allowed me to come back into contact with languages that I'd had to put to one side, like uh, Portuguese, uh, for example, German in the later part of the story, in French. Um, And that was a particularly interesting part of the story, the fact that, you know, we we perhaps aren't aware of uh, how many um, European or Western languages were uh, used in Japan at at certain points in its history.
1: That's truly amazing, and I definitely think it's all reflected in this book.
0: Great, thank you.
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so um, since we're talking about the use and influence of language um, to to get into your book, how did the Japanese learn Dutch and how did the Dutch learn Japanese?
0: Okay, well, I'll answer the second one first because that's a bit uh, more straightforward. Uh, technically, the Dutch were prohibited from uh, learning Japanese. Some did do so, um, you know, they there are these prohibitions, but then there are ways around the prohibitions, whether that involves bribes or not, who knows. Um, but some of the Dutch clearly did learn some Japanese. Typically, they were intellectuals. Uh, I think of Isaac Titsing, um, for example. Uh, he was the captain or opperhoofd of the. Um, Dutch trading post at Deshima uh, in the second half of the 18th century um, and he'd studied at Leiden University clearly a very intelligent man and he built up a network of Japanese intellectuals, uh, samurai uh, with whom he corresponded um, and typically they would correspond in Dutch but you know, he'd ask them questions about Japanese um, from his archives we see that he was practicing writing uh, in kanji, um, so you know he wouldn't necessarily have been using it in everyday conversation, but certainly had acquired some knowledge of Japanese. Uh, others, such as Engelbert Kempfer, um, the uh, German physician in the late seventeenth century, also acquired some Japanese, and then uh, Philip von Siebold, um perhaps uh, the most famous uh, of the physicians uh, on uh, Deshima. Um, Clearly, learnt uh, some Japanese uh, as as well. So that's that side of things. On the one hand, prohibited, but on the other hand, some Dutch were clearly uh, learning it. Some had to leave. Actually, some some Dutch in the seventeenth century were asked to leave by uh, the Japanese authorities because their Japanese was too good. Um, the reason for that, uh, without being too cynical, is probably because the uh, I would argue that the um, Japanese authorities wanted the, to have interpreters as middlemen between the um, Dutch traders and the Japanese merchants and intellectuals um, who they were dealing with. Um, and that allowed them to gain information about what the Dutch were up to. So you could see them perhaps as spies by another name. Um, so I think that that's part of uh, the reason for that. Now going the other way, uh, that's a, a more complex story. And in the book, uh, I use the phrase uh, kaite, um steps." I think is one way you can translate that. Uh, and I see the way in which the Japanese uh, acquired a knowledge of Dutch as a series of steps: sometimes forward, sometimes a little sideways, occasionally backwards, but uh, you can see uh, a clear trajectory over time of um, how the Japanese learnt uh, Dutch and that became more sophisticated. So they would uh, begin uh, in the first instance by learning by rote um, from other Japanese uh, and there were often complaints by the Dutch that the pronunciation of um, the, the, the Dutch by the Japanese wasn't um, particularly clear Let's say, and that has much to do with, um, you know, the different sound system that Japanese has from from Dutch. So they started by learning rote by rote, um, but that didn't necessarily help them with their understanding of Dutch. Um, So one can imagine that there was quite a bit of miscommunication going on. Um, We have word lists from um, the 17th, 18th century uh, and... They are often in the Aroha uh, sequence, Uh, we haven't yet got to alphabetical or European alphabetical word lists or lexicons at this point, so they're compiling word lists to to learn the words to communicate with um, the Dutch. The next phase is really um, sort of discursive spaces. Uh, where um, Japanese would gather together, for example, in the house of uh, Katsunagao Hoshu in Edo, um, or uh, Yoshio Kogyo in um, Nagasaki, uh, and they'd exchange information about the Dutch, uh, about Dutch things. They were crazy about Dutch things. And because they couldn't leave uh, Japan, um, you know, they they uh, had to talk amongst themselves and occasionally try and drag in some Dutch people uh, to, you know, help them with their Dutch. So you're gradually seeing a, a development the sophistication of the spaces in which the Japanese are learning. Uh, and then you start to get uh, shijuku, private schools, uh, being set up uh, in the late 18th century into the 19th century, where Japanese are being taught not only... Um, the Dutch language uh, but also about Dutch learning um, you know in, in uh, fields such as medicine uh, chemistry, physics um, so you can gradually see uh, a progression over time the increased sophistication and then you've also got an increased sophistication in the materials uh, so you start with these simple word lists, at this point there's no real grammar of the Um, Dutch language in in Japanese. Uh, Towards the end of the 18th century, um, you get a quantum step forward, particularly for the translators, where you've got the Haruma uh, dictionaries. So um, in the middle of the the 18th century, uh, the Dutch imported bilingual French-Dutch dictionaries called Halma by François Halma, uh, uh, a Dutch lexicographer of French descent. Um, So the Japanese um, intellectuals were using these bilingual French-Dutch dictionaries to create bilingual Japanese-Dutch dictionaries. Uh, And what you also see is that um, there's there's a shift in terms of the Dutch being put on the left, if you like, so people are able to look up the Dutch word in alphabetical order and then find the Japanese equivalent. And, and that really helps translation a great deal because you can imagine trying to translate when you're having to look up the Japanese word first, even though you're translating from Dutch into um, Japanese. So you've got these halma uh, dictionaries, the Edo Haruma, uh, and then another one uh, which was mainly produced by um, the Dutch Oberhof Hendrik Doof, um, sometimes known as the Zufu uh, haruma, uh, and in contrast to the Edo haruma, you've got a native speaker there, uh, and uh, he was able to add a lot of uh, Dutch phrases uh, to the um, to, to his haruma, his halma uh, book bu- uh, lexicon. Sorry, um, and perhaps finally on that one, you you do have uh, a development of. Um, Japanese grammars of uh, Dutch so um, there's a Dutch grammar by uh, Sewell Willem Sewell which was used uh, as the basis for Japanese grammars like yakken uh, keys to uh, the language uh, so in the late ni- in, in the 19th century sorry you see a development of, of grammars um, and even guides on pronunciation so by the mid 19th century, uh, you've really got quite a uh, a, com- a complex picture of um, learning materials uh, for uh, the Japanese to to learn Dutch.
1: That's quite fascinating. And now that now that you uh, you spoke of uh, translation of Dutch knowledge, I, I was recently reading a very interesting book on the Langaku network in Tokyo, Japan, and how translation translations of Dutch books spread. So from your, from a cultural and social linguistics perspective, how was the Dutch language used in Japan by Japanese people? Like in what fields were they used and how, how would you describe the process that they translated these knowledge, um, other than the, uh, the dictionaries you just mentioned?
0: Sure. Um. I think, again, we can talk uh, in terms of um, steps. So uh, in 1640s, 1650s, uh, you've got got surgeons uh, in Deshima. Um, And what the surgeons are doing, which is what Chinese-trained or Chinese-medicine-trained Japanese uh, uh, physicians are not doing, is opening up the body. Um, is surgery Um, and they they can see that the Dutch physicians are able to cure um, you know patients in a way that uh, Chinese medicine was not able to and that's happening quite early on Uh, and a key moment um, is in 1650 um, where you have a a German uh, physician in uh, Edo who manages to cure uh, one of the courtiers of um, the shogun um, of um, uh, what was it? Uh, of some some disease which um, the gout, that's right it was gout uh, is able to cure the courtier of gout which the Chinese uh, physicians had not been able to using their uh, approach to medicine, which is more holistic. Um, so quite early on uh, in the story, the, the um, Japanese see that Dutch uh, surgery uh, medicine has something to offer them. In the first instance, uh, translations, and we need to understand the word translation quite broadly here, um, often involves noting down the oral instructions of Um, the surgeon uh, and then translating um, those instructions into um, Japanese. Uh, Over time, again, uh, the the Dutch physicians produce notes that the Japanese uh, translate. Uh, And then uh, we start to get Dutch books being imported on medicine and those being translated into uh, Japanese. Um, and uh, a, a book by Adam Kulmus, which was originally written in uh, in Latin, um, was translated into uh, Japanese as kaitai uh, shinsho, Shinso, sorry, um, and that was a, a key moment um, because that included people like uh, Sukita Kenpaku and Maino Ryotaku. Uh, and they recorded the process um, by which they translated uh, Dutch into Japanese. So you get a real insight into the problems um, that they, they experienced. How do you translate a word like nerve into uh, Japanese when you haven't seen a nerve? Uh, before. Uh, So you get a real insight into the the, the troubles uh, that they had translating from Dutch to Japanese. Um, But over time, as I say, um, Shijuku private schools were set up for the study of uh, Dutch medicine, Ranpo. uh, And that clearly, you know, they they, they probably ran into their thousands, the number of um, Japanese who were studying Dutch. And then they would often return to um, you know their domain, where they came from, and, and practice the Dutch medicine. So, if you like uh, the Dutch language, Dutch knowledge um, was spreading throughout Japan. And when I say Dutch, uh, again, um, I have to be a bit careful because some of the physicians, as I've already suggested, were German. Um, there was uh, Swedish uh, physicians as well, and their know-how was really more uh, Western rather than specifically dutch but dutch was the medium through which um, this knowledge was transmitted and i i coined the word metalect in uh the book to talk about dutch as as a conveyor a transmitter of information so medicine was one area another area was uh astronomy um the development of the telescope uh, was uh, an important step forward in astronomy. Obviously, in Europe, that happened in about 1610 um, in the Dutch Republic. Um, so clearly, the, the Dutch were able to, uh, you know, see the stars, see the sky much better than um, their Japanese counterparts. Um, and they were able to contribute to producing better calendars for uh, the Japanese Uh, And that helped in terms of uh, agriculture, Um, when to sow your seed, when to harvest, uh, etc. So um, often, I I think Vim Boat sums it up very well, the the Japanese translated what they needed to translate. It wasn't a case of the Dutch coming along and saying, oh, we've got these books, would you like to translate them? It's a case of the Japanese saying, oh, you do it that way, do you? Oh, okay, you, you you, you have these insights. Uh, we want to know more uh, about that. Um, and sometimes that would lead to, you know, a paradigm shift. Uh, I think, for example, of uh, botany. Um, in in uh, the 18th century, uh, Carl Linnaeus uh, developed the binomial system for uh, plant classification uh, up to that point, both in Europe and in uh, Japan. Plants had often been classified by um, characteristics um, such as what, what could they cure. Uh, but um, Linnaeus uh, introduced a much more systematic uh, approach, uh, which also ensured that people didn't confuse plants. One could be poisonous, one not. I don't know what I'm dealing with here. Okay? So he introduced that in Latin. Um, but obviously it was the Dutch who who were introducing that into Japan Um, one of his disciples, Carl Thunberg um, was a physician in Japan he collected specimens of uh, Japanese plants and um, published a book Japonica uh, on Japanese plants using uh, the binomial system developed by Linnaeus uh, and uh, Philip von Sieboldt um, he taught uh, at his uh, private academy, the Narutaki Juku, and one of his students was Ito Kesuke, um and he was, uh, you know, sometimes seen as the father of uh, Japanese botany. Very important figure there, and he is again using uh, the Linnaean binomial uh, species genus system. So, in a whole range of uh, of intellectual. Um, areas uh the, the dutch are making uh, contributions to japan but it's important to stress it's the japanese who are deciding what they need rather than if you like the the dutch um pushing it
1: wow oh, you raised so many interesting points some of which i definitely would like to come back to mm-hmm. but although the main discussion of this book is about the Dutch language. As you just mentioned, there were other languages used in Japan. What were they? And were they used as. Uh, this might be a, a b- repeating what we're talking about a bit, but were they used? Were these other languages used in the same fields as Dutch was? And were they learned in the same ways as Dutch was?
0: Okay, I think we can. Uh, analyze that in, in sort of three stages. Um, when Dutch arrived, if you like, and um, I perhaps go a bit too far in the book, but I try to make Dutch almost a person arriving on the shores of uh, Japan um, and in 1600 and then asking what happened next. But when the Dutch language came to Japan, um, Portuguese uh, was already quite well uh, established. Um, as the main European language in uh, Japan. This had partly to do with uh, the promulgation of Christianity by Portuguese but also uh, Spanish uh, and other Catholic um, missionaries Um, but also uh, trade. Um, The the Portuguese acted as intermediaries uh, between Japan and China because uh, China had prohibited um, official trade uh, between the two countries so Um, Portugal, um, you know, took on the role of commercial intermediary there. So Portuguese was quite well uh, established in um, Japan, um, certainly uh, for intellectual uh, life, uh, but also for religious life. And of course, Latin uh, was used, the mass was celebrated in uh, Japan in Latin. Uh, But as we all know, towards the end of the 16th century, um, the Japanese authorities started to clamp down on uh, Christianity, uh, and eventually, in 1639, all the Portuguese were expelled after the Shimabara uh, Shimabura Rebellion. Um, and but after that, uh, even though there weren't any Portuguese left in uh, Japan, um, the Portuguese persisted uh, as a language, uh, certainly into the 18th. Uh, century. And we we can ask why why was that? Well, uh, it was clearly already well established. Some people already spoke Portuguese, so they were unwilling to switch uh, to it. Um, It's likely that certainly in the 1640s, 1650s, that uh, when Dutch spoke to Japanese, they would use a Portuguese interpreter, which uh, one can imagine led to various bits of miscommunication. Um, So Portuguese persisted, but eventually, uh, in about 1670, the uh, governor of Nagasaki started to send the interpreters to the Dutch to learn Dutch. Uh, And so that's, you know, Portuguese really starts to decline after that time. But Um, well into the 17th century, uh, Japanese intellectuals are asking the Dutch for Portuguese books, not Dutch books. So clearly Portuguese persists and you can see it as a a competitor uh, to Dutch in in, um, early Tokugawa, Japan. In the 18th uh, century, um, there are there are few other European languages in uh, Japan so so that's really when Dutch shines, um, if you like. Dutch brings with it Latin um, and uh, occasionally um, Japanese translators need to translate from Latin uh, into uh, Japanese. Uh, Shizuki Tadao uh, is a good example of that but he somehow managed to find a Latin-Dutch dictionary to translate uh, a couple of Verses of uh, of um, Latin uh, poetry into uh, Japanese, but also Dutch is competing or has contact with with Chinese in the sense that um, it's that up to this point, Japanese intellectual life is primarily framed by um, Chinese learning, um, particularly in the field of medicine. Um, uh, and, and so, in some sense, Dutch is, is competing with Chinese as as the language of medicine. Clearly, Chinese, have, you know, is, is much more widely known than, than Dutch at this point. Um, but that, that doesn't stop Dutch from making some inroads into what had up to that point been primarily a, a, a Chinese language um, discipline, medicine. Uh, and... Then we go into the 19th century, and uh, I think it was 1808 was it. The the Phaeton affair was a was a key turning point. Um, this was the period of Sakoku. Uh, Japan wasn't completely closed, but it it was open in a very limited uh, way. Um, but in 1808, uh, a British frig, frigate, the the Phaeton. Uh, gets into Nagasaki Harbor, um, and the alarm bells start ringing because uh, the Japanese are aware that that shouldn't have happened, um, and they think um, they need to start learning some other languages. They get reports, the full sets of gaki, and they're probably coming to a realization that there are other countries who present a threat. From the north, you've already got Russian ships being sighted, um, uh, of, of northern uh, Japan, and, and Russian ships indeed come to Nagasaki to try and open up trade between Russia and Japan. So the Japanese authorities realise that uh, the interpreters need to learn other languages apart from Dutch. Um, they, they, they learn uh, English, uh, they learn French to, to a lesser extent, um, and uh, there, there's private learning of German uh, as well. So in the, in the final part of the story, uh, which I, I look at in particular in Chapter 8, but also in Chapter 4, um, I look at how English uh, and, and French gradually dislodged Dutch, uh, particularly from the intellectual domain. But by early Meiji, um, Dutch has pretty much disappeared uh, from, from the scene, certainly as a language of wider communication in Japan.
1: Now, the uh, the key concept of your book, as indicated in the title, contact language. Um, so this process that you just described, um, how the Dutch language was used as the medium for the Japanese and um, people from other countries of other languages to communicate, is this um, uh, what, what contact language means?
0: Um- Good question. I have probably interpreted it uh, quite broadly um, to bring these other uh, languages into uh, the story. Effectively, technically speaking, uh, one can define a contact language as uh, a language that operates in the same socio-semiotic space as other languages, but that obviously needs a, a bit of unpacking. I guess one can, you know, imagine it that if you've got a group of people speaking one language who are in close contact with uh, a group of people speaking uh, another language, then you have the, the beginnings of, um, you know, Dutch or a language as a as a contact language, um, and the question is what happens next? You know, as those two groups, let's say the Dutch and the Japanese in Nagasaki, start to communicate, Um, they realise they haven't necessarily got all the words they need to communicate, so they start borrowing or switching into um, the other languages, Uh, so uh, particularly Japanese is, is borrowing from Dutch, you know, they might say, what's that? And the Dutch say it's, coffee we call it coffee um which might be a bit difficult uh for japanese to say so eventually that becomes kohi okay so then you've got uh the beginning of loan words um a, a big part of this story hasn't necessarily got to do with people speaking different languages and coming into the same um area but uh it's to do with translation so Uh, you know, the the Japanese translators are coming into contact with Dutch in books. They want to understand them, so they need to translate them and and use their uh, dictionaries uh, to do so. Um, In discussing the previous question, I was really talking in in terms of um, competition, okay? Uh, You've got those two groups of speakers who, you know, might just swap words here and there but at a certain point one group might think it's better its language is more powerful in some way and so that uh one language language a starts to dislodge um language b uh and that was certainly happening um at the beginning of um the 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 story where dutch eventually dislodges portuguese and at the end of the story where english uh and french and, and german dislodge Dutch. So when those languages come into contact, there's often an element of um, competition. So uh, that's that's part of uh, contact. But it's also about uh, syntactic interference. Um, what do I mean by that? I mean that uh, particularly in, in terms of translation, uh, in order for uh, people speaking language A to be able to translate from language B into language A, they may lack uh, grammatical structures which they feel they need uh, in order to you know, capture the full meaning of, of the source text. So um, they may need to invent uh, new syntax or reuse particles uh, in different ways to adequately represent um, what, what is in the source text. And there are a few examples in the book um, of particles such as um, which uh, are being reused by Japanese translators to bridge that um, syntactic gap, uh, if you like. And uh, another uh, final aspect perhaps of, of this language contact is that sometimes it results in a shift in um, script. Uh, I don't think that's that's typically discussed in, if you like, classic studies of language contact. But uh, in this case, uh, I wanted to talk about the fact that uh, you've got two such different scripts. You've got, you know, Japanese with its kanji and its hiragana and its katakana. And then you've got this Dutch alphabetic um, system, which is, is based on sound, phonology. Uh, and uh so some japanese found that to be um you know a, a simpler way of writing um and even advocated leaving um leaving behind uh the, the traditional writing system and moving to uh, the roman script the um Jap- sorry the portuguese had uh in in uh the, the 1600s had developed a uh, transcription system of japanese uh, so that could have been used something like that could have been used to transcribe Japanese the Japanese sounds into uh, a Roman alphabet. Um, but on the other hand, you had Japanese who didn't like the foreign influence that was being exerted, and they saw the writing of um, Japanese in a foreign script as a step too far. Um, so they uh, certainly, you know, rejected this barbarian. Um, script uh, you know like people writing sideways Um, so they eventually won the day but there were certainly discussions around whether uh, you know Japanese should be written in uh, Roman script so yeah there there are different ways there's loanword borrowing there's uh, syntactic uh, interference uh, and uh, on occasion graphic interference uh, as a result of that language contact
1: That's absolutely fascinating. And as I was reading your book, I noticed that um, you quoted Peter Burke a lot. Now, I am a big fan of Peter Burke myself. I find his works on popular culture to be very useful when um, I analyze uh, the cultural history of early modern Japan. So can you, for a selfish purpose, could you uh, talk more about uh, how Peter Burke's um, works uh, can be inspiring for your uh, for this study on the Dutch language in Japan.
0: Lovely question, thank you. Yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of um, Peter Burke's work. Uh, I typically find that when I want to study a new subject, whatever it is, uh, Peter Burke's been there before. Um, Myself, uh, I wrote a book on um, multilingualism in the Dutch Republic, uh, which was published in in 2014. And Peter Burke had written about um, a a sort of cultural history of the Dutch language in the early modern period. uh, And that really helped me uh, think uh, about the the subject um, in in a very productive way. I think what I like particularly about Peter Burke's work is that he frames the subject using apposite phrases. He helps to sum up the the main idea uh, in a very good way. So one example would be cultural go-between. I like that idea. Um, Someone's, you know, with with a a foot in um, two cultures and enabling um, cultural transfer from one culture to another and also uh, linguistic Uh, Transfer. Um, And that was a a particularly uh, productive phrase uh, for me to use in uh, this book. He's done a lot of work on translation. He's an early modernist. um, And I I guess that's one of the caps that uh, I wear. Uh, He's written on translation in early modern Europe. uh, And I felt when I was discussing translation in uh, Tokugawa Japan, that it would be useful to frame that discussion in similar terms to the way in which Peter Burke had discussed uh, translation in early modern Europe. You know, asking deceptively simple questions like, who was translating? How were they translating? Translating? What was the effect of this translation on broader uh, society? So yeah, I I really like um, the way that uh, Peter Burke frames, um, you know, the discussions that he has about cultural history, Um, and also the fact that he's an early modernist means he's he's often been uh, there before myself, um, which is which is very helpful.
1: So you mentioned. Um, early in our conversation that there hasn't been there haven't been a lot of scholarships on this topic because of the difficulty of dealing with multiple languages Um, so moving towards the end of our conversation I have one last question for you now that you have dealt with almost all the technical issues on Dutch as a context language in Japan, in this book. What are your next steps and how does this project fit in your entire uh, broader um, interest of research?
0: Okay, thank you uh, for that. Uh, Just before I answer that question, if I just may make a quick plug um, for uh, the listeners. um, The book, the Dutch language in Japan 1600 to 1900 um, is available via the Brill uh, website. Um, And listeners to the podcast can get a 50% discount on the book um, if they purchase it uh, for themselves or for their institution by 31st of May. And they need to include the discount code 72150. 72150 um so hopefully uh, that will you know uh, inspire uh, a few purchases of the book then to come to your question what are my next steps well uh, i'm currently in taiwan um and uh i'm here uh, on a on a fellowship to study um the the, the reception of the christian gospel in uh, Taiwan, and uh, as I occasionally surprise my Taiwanese friends, I I tell them that the Dutch were the first Europeans uh, to come to uh, Taiwan uh, in uh, 1624, and uh, they came to trade, but also uh, with the purpose of converting um, the indigenous Formosans to Christianity. Um, Spanish also came to uh, Taiwan as a sort of counter move in, in the 80 years war uh, and they also brought with the missionaries who uh, converted uh, northern Formosans. So I look in that book at how the European missionaries tried to bridge what was quite an immense cultural and linguistic gap between their own cultures you know, uh, informed by Judeo-Christianity, by um, pagan classical world by the Renaissance, how they brought uh, the Christian gospel and tried to communicate the Christian gospel to the uh, Formosans, who of course would never have heard of uh, the gospel, who spoke uh, completely different languages to uh, the Dutch and, and Spanish. So that's really, if you like, a case study of reception, but it still somehow involves the Dutch and then sort of at the other end of the Eurasian continent, uh, I'm, um, I've just written another book on a, an Anglo-Dutch poet uh, who lived in my hometown of Norwich uh, in the 17th century. Uh, and I look at how he formed his literary identity and his military identity, various identities in um, early modern England. So that, that book really focuses on the questions of... Um, identity formation. So that's, uh, you know, those are two projects which uh, I'm uh, currently involved in. Lastly, I guess, going back to Japan, um, I would certainly like to do further research in Japan. When you've kind of produced a, a big book like that, you perhaps need to take a little break, do something else, and then come back to that subject with um, you know, fresh in enthusiasm. But uh, although I've I've covered, I'd say, quite a bit of ground, there is still more to do, I think, in Rangaku, particularly in Western languages. Uh, and this is the challenge on this particular subject, in that there are books on certain things in Japanese, but not in Western languages, and vice versa. Uh, but there's certainly more work to do on Rangaku, uh in uh, a western language and perhaps also looking at the story of christianity in um, in tokugawa japan Uh, and you know while researching this book i was very aware that despite the sort of received wisdom that christianity was banned and no one was practicing it well actually there was quite a lot of activity going on certainly there were christian books being imported even though that was technically illegal um, so that's certainly a story I'd like to look at um, more you know, it, more deeply, um, time permitting.
1: I think it's truly amazing, truly incredible how all these projects are drastically different, but then they connect in some way. It's, it's, it sounds really amazing. Thank you so much for your time and for this wonderful conversation.
0: Thank you, GE, for having me.
1: Thank you, listeners, for joining us. To find out more about the interactions between Dutch and Japanese, make sure you check out this new book, The Dutch Language in Japan. And you can find the uh, promotion link, the promotion code, in the description of this book above. This is Jingyi Yi from New Books on Japanese Studies. I will see you in our next episode. Until then, goodbye.